This is The First Stop, a podcast with the aim of exploring the minds of artists in and around New Haven. I'm your host, David Livingston, an artist and educator at University of New Haven. In this episode, we'll navigate the mind of New Haven-based artist Joe Smolinski. The works discussed in this podcast can be found on our blog at firststopart.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at firststop.art. Joe is a multimedia artist working in drawing, photography, video, digital 3D modeling, and animation. His practice engages with technology, environmental science, landscape painting, science fiction, and the eroding borders between the natural and human-made world. He is currently in the midst of creating a new series of ominous and beautifully detailed graphite drawings depicting open water, which we'll discuss towards the end of this podcast. Welcome to the first stop. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm excited to be here. Your work deals a lot with the, we'll talk about individual works uh, during the show, but your work deals a lot with this relationship between nature and technology. Yeah. When did you start becoming interested in that as a, as an area of focus for, for your work? I think, um, there's a couple of points that I can reach mm-hmm. back to. I think if I if I really reach back far, I can I can uh, talk about my upbringing, right? And sure, yeah, um, I, I, that yeah. sounds interesting. I mean, Go so I it. so I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, as a kid, um, I was interested in art and stuff like that. But mostly because my grandfather was a self-taught landscape painter, and oh, that's fascinating. So yeah. as long as I can remember, I would go visit him. And he was also like a sportsman, right? Like he was hunter, hunting and fishing and he built this amazing like Swiss style chalet cabin in the middle of the woods in northern Minnesota on a beautiful lake. And that's where we spent our summers like just swimming and fishing and boating and hiking through the woods and stuff like that. And he would make these paintings of the northern Minnesota landscape and he was really interested in ducks and birds. And so, in the winters, that's what he would do. He'd paint. And... uh Ever since I can remember, he would invite me over and like, when I was little, he'd put me on his lap in front of his easel and he'd show me how to mix colors and we'd talk about painting and stuff like that. And I was interested. And so, it, we'd have these fad family gatherings and yeah. he, would, he would only talk to me about painting. He wouldn't talk to the rest of the family. <laughs> it was like this, that, that, that's not totally true, but there was definitely, I felt like there was a focus on my interest in art from him at a really early age. So, he would drop off art supplies at the house and do stuff like that. And then the cool thing was is that so, his brother was uh, who lived in California. I never met him but my great uncle Morris Scott Dollins. If you look him up, he's a pretty amazing artist. Um, He was a sci-fi artist who worked in movies and uh, did concept design and so, he painted all these amazing images of like outer space, right? and uh, spaceships and cities, you know, building yeah. building cities in outer space and stuff like that. And so, my grandfather, along with showing me his own 
artwork about the landscape would show me these slides. He'd set up a slideshow and show me these, project these images of like outer space that his brother was painting using airbrush and all kinds of different stuff. And so he would do like set design for like sci-fi B movies and stuff like that. And, um, that's amazing. So I kind of grew up like, look, like admiring my grandfather's work. And then also like these awesome images of my great uncle's work, which were like total sci-fi based in technology and science and, and, uh, and so I, I, when I look back at my work and I, I don't think I really like modeled it after that, but those are, those are two early influences that just, I can see the trajectory in my, my current work. It's great that you mentioned the sci-fi uncle, because I was actually, I was looking through your work and, and there is, I mean, it is in a way sci-fi because you're, you're dealing with a real phenomenon going on and then you're yeah. kind of projecting yeah. into the future and right. looking at what it's going to become, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's what sci-fi does, right? Yeah. It has to be believable in our reality. It's to some degree to make right. it effective and then also project that this is a future reality, right? And I think um, that has a lot of influence um, in even in the design of what we have right now, right? So Totally. And I was going to actually ask you because, you know, oftentimes sci-fi as you were just saying, is a, a kind of a product of its time. Right. And, and is processing, you know, the current moment yeah. and creating a future out of it. And I was just going to ask you if, if looking back, because you've been doing work that, you know, deals with the environment. We'll talk about individual works, but you've been dealing with the environment and sort of apocalyptic things having to do with the environment and right. in different in different ways over the course of your career. And I was wondering if the work that you made a decade ago, if you look at it and you say, that was kind of a little bit of a different time and I was thinking about things differently. I've actually uh, recently been pulling out a lot of older work. And, uh, and it's funny, like when you, when you look at work that you've made 10 or 12 years ago, Sometimes there's a moment where you think like, how did I make that? <laughs> or, what, mm -hmm. or like, what was yeah. I thinking about? Um, and I know, I know that a real change in my work happened when I was, you know, out of grad school and trying to figure things out. And I, my, my, uh, background is, you know, I got a BFA in printmaking and, and photography. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was really interested in the combination of those two things. Like I love the hand physical elements of printmaking and the yeah. process and the slow way to arrive at an image. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then yeah. also in photography, I just love the fact that you just can capture so much information uh, quickly and, um, and then f framing and composition becomes a really important element in that as well. And um, uh, so th that's my early background. Going to grad school, I kind of carried that into my practice, but then I was opened up to like all kinds of new things, like thinking about sculpture and installation and video and time and, you know, all those things together. Mm -hmm. So out of grad school and, and my, um, my uh, early mentor, um, Bernice Fisick Swenson, who is the, uh, at the University of River Falls, Wisconsin, she told me when I went off to grad school, she's like, you're going to have a great time in grad school. Once you get out, you're going to want to try to unlearn everything you learned in grad school. And I look back at that now and that's, that's kind of what happened is it's like you sort of like you, you go through critique and intense critique mm -hmm. and study and making and then you get out and you kind of just need to like let things settle, right? Like you've totally. shaken up the, the mix, right? And then everything just has to like settle down. 
And during that time, I, I, I went back to making drawings because, uh, you know, I didn't have quite a, a studio situation that worked out very well. Um, and I just, you know, started making drawings again, um, which was great. And at the same time, I remember driving to New York along the Merritt Parkway from Connecticut. And, you know, on the horizon is this giant cell phone tree just kind of looming over the horizon, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was a bit of that kind of sci-fi moment, right? Like, um, we've been invaded by technology. It, right. It's disguised itself. It's it's mimicking uh, the natural yet obviously fake. Yeah. And uh, just the absurdity of that was really striking to me. And that's that started the whole series of these cell phone uh, tree drawings that that really began this kind of investigation of the landscape, technology, that transformed into, you know, thinking about the environment and, and all these, this language that I started, you know, building upon. So it was kind of like, I don't know, just that singular time of seeing that and realizing this is, this is a, an image that I can build on, you know, this is. This. So was it a moment of kind of exuberation or was it, you were disturbed or was it kind of a mixture of, of all those it wasn't feelings. I think it was a, a couple of things. One was like hilarity, right? Like yeah. it's just like silly, but it's also, um, you know, growing up in the Midwest, it's not unlikely to see giant monuments in the yeah. landscape. Like the town that I grew up in, North St. Paul, has a humongous 40 foot tall cement snowman as their mascot, right? Yeah. People stop at the roadside, get their picture by it. And, and that's yeah, common. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. drive through Wisconsin, there'll be a giant block of cheese with a mouse on top or whatever. Right. right. Like, like it kind of, so there was that, that, um, that, uh, landmark familiar, right. It was kind yeah. of a familiar thing to see this like bizarre element on the, in the, on the roads. The, the, mm -hmm. And I think the, the, you know, the, our highways and roadways are, are a particular landscape, right? Absolutely. We're looking at an image that Joe made in 2008, or I should say a, a drawing yeah. on or a work on paper entitled Spinning Tree for Spent Oil. Um, and these are all these kind of prototypes that you made that were inspired in part by that tower. Yeah. The, which I, I, I grew up in New York and I know that exact spot along yeah. the highway. Like it's in New York State, yep. rest stop, very close to the Connecticut border. Yeah. 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 And so making those tree drawings just, just got me thinking about all kinds of things. And, and then um, this, uh, the tree turbine project really came out of that, uh, that same sort of line of thinking where, you know, there was an article I read in the Times about uh, wind power and, and, you know, building wind turbines. And a lot of the arguments against them were aesthetic. Like people didn't thought that the these spinning huge turbines would like mar the landscape. And um, so then I thought mm -hmm. about, you know, the cell phone trees that are meant, meant to assimilate into the landscape in some odd way. Right? Yeah. So, so I, I, I just basically did a couple of sketches of uh, a spinning tree thinking, well, if, if we use the, the notion that we can just disguise a technology with a natural element to, to blend into the environment, why not make a turbine that could spin generate electricity but look like a tree in the same sort of way That's so awesome. I, I started by just sketching that and then coming up with some of the drawings so like spinning tree for spent oil was the idea that you know once the oil is gone <laughs> or not viable anymore right then these uh the architecture that exists could be used for something else and so the images mm -hmm. of um you know oil drilling platform in the middle of the arctic that it now has a giant tree spinning tree turbine generate electricity out of it um, so the, the, the great thing for me was that 
you know, these were just concepts on paper to begin with. And at the same time, I was, you know, my, my work has developed from, it, it's always about drawing to some degree. You know, I think that everything starts out one way or another through a sketch or a drawing or um, a doodle of some sort, and then it evolves into something else. And uh, I, I've been exploring, uh, you know, 3D animation and 3D modeling for a long time. And so what I, I realize is that, you know, the great thing about the virtual is that you, you don't have to adhere to the physics of reality, right? So right. I could build a tree turbine in, in the virtual world and make it spin and, you know, generate power for a city or whatever. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just like a concept. And so from the drawings, then I made this 3D animated video, which is just a series of six different landscapes. And it's not a narrative per se. I think about a lot of my my moving image work is like a moving painting as opposed to a strong narrative of some sort of way. But from the video, then uh, I got invited by Denise Marconish from the uh, Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, Mass MoCA, to actually show in uh, this exhibition called Badlands. And they invited me to, you know, design and build an actual tree turbine um, using their facilities and their amazing crew that they have. Uh, and uh, so it was just this, this process of like, reading something in the times, connecting it to my current work, um, just kind of being in tuned at the right time to, to make this work and, and think about it in a way and then yeah. have something come, like have something realized out of that that I never thought about actually doing, right? It wasn't even my idea to make a real one. Right, Denise's, right, right. Denise's idea, like, can we do this? Can we make one? And uh, I was like, yeah, sure. You know, like, why not? And I think that you know, I think about this idea that like artists sometimes are kind of like waiting for creativity to happen. Like when's mm -hmm. the lightning bolt going to strike, right? And, yeah. I, and I think, I feel like the lightning bolt is always striking all the time. It's just, you kind of have to be ready for it, right? You totally. have to be prepared, right? And yeah. so like, and that's why I like the, that moment of me seeing the tree, the, the, the cell phone tree in the landscape, I felt like I was ready for that, right? I built up this time of like grad school, like learning how to make things and think about things in new ways. And, and you were modeling this prototype already, right? In a virtual with, kind of environment. Um, of the cell of the, phone tree? Were you, the, were you the doing turbine? the spinning tree turbine? Was that, did you model that in 3D? Yeah, yeah. So you kind of had a sense of what yeah. three-dimensionally, like what the measurements might be or what yeah or a sense a sense of it yeah. right but the problem is is that you know like how does material physics, work yeah, yeah. material and physics right yeah like those are two big problems yeah uh, so did you run into problems during the fabrication of that object i mean i mean so this this kind of started um me on you know working on a big project like the tree turbine is you know you become a bit more of a project manager in some sort of ways you know you yeah you know, so you wear a little bit different hat and i realized i needed a lot of help uh and so you know part of that was reaching out to the engineering department at the university of haven where i teach that's awesome and just you know talking to some of the engineers and you know i got to talk to some students and um, we came up with some prototype designs i have like all these images of like like paper cups cut out to look like a tree to see if they spin in the wind and doing all these like little mock-up studies to see what would work and um you know part of the design of the tree turbine is are these holes near the base of it that i didn't I didn't think, like aesthetically, they don't really make sense in terms mm -hmm. of a tree, but it allows the wind to actually flow through and continue oh, cool. the, the, this object to spin around, you know. So, there's like these these things that I learned about through the research of it. And I think that that's part of it too. What I what I realized through the this is that research is a big part of art making. 
yeah. um, in any sort of degree. And so kind of reaching out to other disciplines is an important way of, of conducting mm-hmm. that and like learning about how, I don't know, just constantly learning, right? How do systems work? You know, how to... Yeah, yeah. And and so you're talking a lot about, you know, the, the learning process. Um, how has, how is teaching here at UNH uh, you're now the chair of the department. How has that influenced your art making process? I mean, I think it's always been connected in yeah. one way or another. I think part of it from early on was um, I felt like I needed to um, work on artwork with my students so that they would trust me. Right. Right. So from very beginnings, you know, when I started out teaching drawing, uh, I didn't really draw with the students. And um, I remember, I'm trying to think who it was, but I had, uh, there was a faculty friend that I knew that asked me if I ever draw in class. And I said, well, I don't, don't typically, but then uh, one day I just like set up an easel and drew with the students and it, it kind of changed a lot. Right. It was like, oh, they could see what I was looking at and how I responded to it. And so... That just started, that started a practice that I, that I've continued. So typically in most of my classes, there's some element of a project that I'll bring in and show them what I'm working on, right? Or, yeah, the, or yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of those early uh, cell phone tree drawings I would make in class, you know, like mm-hmm. take a break and I'd work on them and students would ask me what I'm doing and I'd show them. And, you know, most of those early drawings are just 11 by 14 because I could pack them up in my bag and right. they're mobile. I didn't need a big studio to make them. And um, yeah. And so a lot of them were made like in class, yeah, which, yeah, which is cool. And then beyond that, you know, when I made the tree turbine video was when I first started teaching 3D animation. And so I was showing them my processes along with, the, you know, and I yep. think that I always feel like responsible to my students. Like I want to continue to be a practicing artist because I want them to know that I'm not, it's not just the knowledge I'm giving them, but I'm, I'm sharing my practice with them and yeah. part of the development of an artist. Totally, totally. Understanding that and learning it. And so I've had students help me with all kinds of different projects. Um, whether it's like I've had students, you know, help me with uh, in studio, um, installing projects, um, doing research. Um, and I think it's just a, I don't know, it's a great way to engage with, I don't know, I think of art making as like not a, career choice, but rather like a lifestyle decision. Yeah. And so by letting students into that part of my life, I think that it'll have some understand that, that, you know, this is something that they can, they can do as well. Totally. Um, and that was my experience as a, as an undergrad student as well. I mean, my printmaking professor, um, you know, she brought me into her studio. She taught me how to frame things. She, you know, gave me old equipment that she didn't use anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, she helped me get my first solo show in Minneapolis when I was still a senior in undergrad. You know, like That's awesome. these sort of experiences are so important for a, for a developing artist. Um, so my practice and the and the you know the things. I mean, you've seen like even in the digital fabrication class, I was three D printing my snowball pieces and stuff like right. that with students, and you know, showing them how I set things up to get it to print the best way. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah. So so. I mean, I think that being an educator, uh, I just see it connected directly to my art practice. Sometimes more or less, right? But mm-hmm. um, it, it, I think at the end of the day, it's it's sort of you know I want I want my students to know that I'm an artist and that I am continuing my practice, right? And yeah, that that helps them understand that when I say something's due, it's really due. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, 
just back to this Badlands show before we move on, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, I actually saw this show when it was installed at Mass Mocha and it really before we knew each other. I didn't know you at all. Yeah. I didn't live in New Haven at all. Yeah. And um I saw that show and I I was kind of actually making work that had to do with like nature and forms. It was very it was different from what I'm doing now, but I it really I looked at it and I was like, whoa, this is so yeah cool. And um then later on I ended up purchasing the catalog right. that I have here. And I ended up having to move out of New York to New Haven right. to, to follow, follow my wife. And I was really apprehensive about moving to New Haven. And then I yeah. started looking through the book just randomly. I was like, I want to see more of this arts and maybe it'll yeah. give me some inspiration. And they had profiles of all the artists and your name came up right. and great. it was like based in New Haven. And I... It gave me a little bit of a encouragement yeah. moving to New Haven that there's somebody here who is showing at Mass Mocha yeah. uh, who's kind of making it work as yeah. an artist. Yeah. I mean, New Haven is really important in my career as well. I mean, yeah. it's just, uh, it was a great artist community here. And I think that um, part of it was, you know, connecting with Denise Marconish. I mean, I can't speak highly enough about her. She's just an amazing yeah. curator. And uh, when she first came to New Haven... Uh, and she was working at Artspace. The first thing she did is she created a sign-up sheet for artists for studio visits. That's great. <laughs> Didn't yeah. matter who you were, you could just you know sign up and like get a studio visit, right? And so it was like one of my first like real legitimate studio visits. Uh, I, I'd only been in New Haven for a couple of years. My wife and I moved to New Haven from grad school, and yeah, it was like super easy, right? Mm -hmm. So to that accessibility to like extremely high caliber curator is rare, right? Like that is, I mean, you couldn't actually get that in New York. <laughs> right? You'd have to yeah. spend, you know, yeah. weeks and weeks kind of like showing up to <laughs> openings and right. wait for that moment where you can like hobnob with the right person. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that uh, there's, there's so many opportunities in this city. You know, it's small and, and um, you know, sometimes people can be kind of private about things or whatever. And I, I tend to be a bit of a hermit. I don't, I'm not, you know, I used to a lot, know a lot more people in town than I do. But yeah. part, part of it is because, you know, I have a family now and, and, and that um, takes up a lot of uh, time, sure. time and yeah. energy in a lot of good ways. Um, but I mean, I think connecting to your local community is really important, mm -hmm. right? And people go on, right? Like the people that you've worked with, that you trust and that like your work and support you, they go on. And Denise went on to Mass Mocha, you know, and that was yeah. an amazing connection, right? And so that's, I think that's something throughout my practice I've realized is part of it is like understanding how to play a little bit of the long game, right? I yeah. think that there's this notion, especially if you look at Instagram, it looks, seems like everybody's having the most amazing solo show they ever had in their life right now, right? Totally, totally, totally. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, that's, it, that, that moment is built upon a lot of process, right? Right. So, um, so yeah, like the people that you meet like 10 years later, you never know what connections you'll have. Um, and I think it's, so I think it's important to just like, I don't know, be cool, right? Like, yeah, be, be respectful, be thankful, be appreciative and, um, and your community grow. And that's the thing, right? Your, your art community that you form kind of grows, right? Yeah. And so hopefully you grow with it and then you can take advantage of things. When they yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, the Badlands show was a, was a big moment for me. Um, you know, I think that it definitely, 
um, it brought my work into perspective in terms of drawing the 3D virtual stuff, sculpture, and then, you know, showing it in a super high caliber location. Mm -hmm. And just the philosophy of Mass Mocha is amazing. I mean, they're not a collecting museum. Their major goal is to like make new works with artists. That's amazing. Yeah. That's just, unusual. Like yeah. who else does that? Right. I mean, uh, so I could have never made the tree turbine project by myself. Right. But it happened because of that museum. Right. And, and they've done so many other projects with artists that couldn't have been realized any other way. Right. right? Yeah, totally. So the generosity of that is amazing to think about how much work, you know, has been made because of that. Mm -hmm. and the space and the facilities and the freedom that they have up there yeah um, that's yeah. really cool there, there are these meticulously drawn animals with gps transmitters attached right. to them right i was wondering if you could talk about conceptually about the work what yeah. what does it mean to you um and then i'd like to dive into your your process sure yeah you know so the that series is called a question of dominion and it uh it, it so it's a series of uh silver point drawings of uh animals that are currently being tracked uh via gps or radio collar uh, devices for various different reasons so some of the animals are endangered species some of them are uh game that hunters want to keep alive so they can shoot right right Ugh. others are uh invasive species that they want to monitor and track and see where they go and do um things like that and this the series developed at the same time that i was doing a fellowship at the um, at wesleyan university yeah uh and uh the fellowship was in the college of the environment which is a really cool program because it's uh, multidisciplinary and so um you have faculty from many different departments and then uh visiting fellows like myself to create new courses and to work with the College of the Environment students. And, um, and then I was also part of an environmental think tank, which was amazing. And like, <laughs> I felt like I was over my head in a lot of different ways, but I, it was such a big learning experience for me. And it just made me think about things in a totally different way. So it was like, so that work was, I made that work at the same time that I was doing the fellowship. It started a little bit before that, but I, mm -hmm. but I was really like actively making it during that time. Um, and so the the choice of silver point was kind of a both technical and and conceptual in that um, you know silver point is a cool medium. It kind of relates to the the sort of like fine line drawing practice that I like to do, which I think comes out of like making etchings for, uh, as an undergrad student. And stuff. I see. Um, yeah. And then, um, you know, there's like no erasing, right? You kind of start a drawing and then there's, it is what it is. Like you just have to continue it through. So mm -hmm. the challenge of that, I, f I felt like was pretty, pretty interesting. And then um, silver, uh, you know, it, it starts to change over time. So it, the, the drawing starts out this kind of like high contrast, not necessarily dark like graphite, but it's, it's higher contrast at, th through time and, and in the environment, it changes. It gets more of a muddier brown color. Mm. Lines get a little bit, the fine lines get a little bit lighter. So it starts to like almost disappear and change a little bit. And I like that quality thinking about these creatures um, uh, that, that we're sort of tracking. And so they... Gradually kind of fading away. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're kind of ghostly looking, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the other thing about it was that, you know, realizing, you know, through the think tank and, and other discussions we had that, that we're... You know, humans are essentially like curating the species that remain on the planet, right? So yeah. we can't save all the endangered species. Which ones are we going to preserve, right? I mean, you know, like yeah, uh, the the bald eagle is a good example of that, right? Um, 
you know, in the seventies, there was a huge movement to, to sort of help bring it back. Right. It's a symbol of the United States. Yeah. Right. Like, so, so that's one that we choose, right. We, uh, we've chosen to preserve it. Um, right. But others we don't. Right. So, mm-hmm. so it's just this, this notion that, you know, ultimately we can't save all the creatures. There's some that are going to, that will benefit us. You know, we need, yeah. we need honeybees. Right. Yeah. Um, others that we just think of uh, as these like, iconic kind of creatures, but there's just so many that are not, right? That are not thought of. So, that that was part of it too, is just thinking about like, again, this idea that, you know, human impact in the environment, there is this idea that, yeah, like humans are essentially curating the remaining species that we'll have on the planet, right? So, that's kind of built into the arrangement. You know, they were yeah. kind of shown in a, a large like cluster of these cloud of these images of uh, all framed and kind of like, you know, arranged on the wall. And they're meant to be like a snapshot of this process. So, it's kind of cool to um, to learn about different animals and um, kind of investigate this process all while drawing and thinking about like how they're tracked and why they're tracked. And, uh, you know, like there's a, uh, the great white sharks are tracked and you can like go open up a Google map to see where they are. Right. right. <laughs> so, you know, um, stuff like that. And, and also because of these tracking devices, the environment is mapped in new ways that we haven't been able to map before. Right. So, mm-hmm. like uh, an example would be penguins or whales that have tracking devices on that can go underneath the sea ice and they're giving um, real-time data about um, ocean salinity and temperature and depth and stuff like that, right? So, wow! inadvertently, yeah. they're mapping our environments in new ways that haven't been mapped before. So, that's, that's interesting and bizarre in the same yeah. kind of a light, you know? It seems like in in like Europe and other countries, trying to kind of protect the environment isn't so much a political issue, right? Right. But in the United States, it's very political, even just saying, you know, we need to make a change or we need to protect the environment. And I guess Mm -hmm. you're not necessarily in these particular works talking about protecting the environment, but in most of your work, there's a sense of like an impending Doom, right? And I was wondering if you know you could talk about like the politics for you behind the work. If you have a political position, or if it's a distanced kind of I'm observing a phenomenon that's going on. I think it's. I mean, it's a little bit of both, honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think doing the fellowship at Wesleyan uh, was a changed the way that I thought about things, definitely. And Mm -hmm. still, like processing that a little bit, right? Like. And one thing to think about is like, I don't know, this isn't a political thing rather, but just like, does nature even exist anymore? I mean, have we gotten to a point where the earth is a really cultivated landscape? Um, And then also learning that the earth has been cultivated forever. Right. You know, even uh, native people in the United States, you know, early Native Americans were you know, choosing what trees they wanted to have grow in a forest so that could attract deer. So they could, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so they were clearing certain trees and keeping other ones, you know, right. And that's a, that, that's a modification of the landscape. Another one is, uh, you know, I teach a course called Contemporary Issues of Art and the Environment, and we look at the Amazon rainforest, which is being clear cut at the moment. But what it's unveiling is that there are these amazing circular and geometric hinges that were built in the landscape hundreds of them, thousands of them that were in that area, right? So, they're like you can see it on Google Maps, they're all these like circular ditch-like hinges 
mm. in these clear-cut forests that we thought were just, you know, there forever. But at one time, those Amazon forests were open fields, perhaps, with these, right. with these amazing, like, structures in there. Right? And That's so, interesting, so it's like, yeah. So, the, the process of us manipulating the landscape for our benefit has been going on kind of forever, right? I mean, mm-hmm. but, but now it's like to what degree, right? It's like sort of what what is the impact of that overall, I don't think of myself as like a really a political artist in, in different ways. Yeah. I do. Th- I, I sometimes I think of myself as a little bit like a history artist, a history mm-hmm. painter, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, like so documenting the cell phone tower tree or the animals, yeah. animals that are being tracked and stuff like that. There's a little bit of that involved, you know. Yeah. That I think about, but um, but yeah, I'm I'm definitely like looking at industry, critiquing it to some degree, right? So yeah. I, I think themes that come up again in my work are like looking at the oil and automotive industry. I mean, right? Like that's a that's a huge impact on the American landscape and of course yeah. the environment of the world, right? Um, agricultural industry is another one. Um, that's something that I'm looking at pointing to. I guess I'm trying to I'm trying to understand, like I'm kind of at a point right now in my career where I, I'm able to reflect on some of my older work and mm-hmm. we just, my wife and I just built a brand new studio which has been really amazing and, and it's kind of like we moved out of a studio that we worked in for 12 years and yeah. Uh, you know, it's kind of a chance to regroup a little bit. Yeah. I wouldn't say reinvent, but it's, um, it's kind of cool to like walk into an empty space and think about what could be made. Like a clean slate. Yeah. So that, and I, you know, I know that that process is going to take a little while. So moving forward, I'm, I'm interested in, um, building on some of the themes that I've worked through, but addressing it in new ways. Right. Moving forward, I'm interested in the poetry of imagery, I guess, yes, right? So yes. How do you, how do you scream softly? Right, right, yeah, interesting. <laughs> you know, like how do you, um, how do you, how do you create an image that's not finished so the viewer can add to it and ask themselves a question and leave with not an answer, but a track to follow, you know, right. like that. Right, right. I, th- I think when I look at my, my work, you know, that I started with, even those like early cell phone tree drawings, I think that there's, there's moments of that. The thing that I, that I kind of go back to is like the, the, sometimes the, the humor in them. Sure. Which when I look at some of the work that I've made more recently, there's a bit of a darkness, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in kind of bringing back the humor a little bit. Yeah. Because comedy can allow us to talk about things that are really difficult. Totally. I see. I agree with that. Um, I had a just last week, my wife's friend, um, who's a birder, took us out to a place along the coast, which was actually right here in West Haven. There's a bird sanctuary. Oh, yeah. Is it? Is it not far from campus, right? Is it? It's not that far from campus. It's actually you take the exit and take a left on route one instead of a right and there are all the, there's a whole coastal community over there yeah it's right in the middle of off the suburb you know this kind of suburban wasteland area yeah and this guy knew you know the time that birds and the seasonal you know what birds you're supposed to see when and all this kind of stuff and so there's this little outcropping with that goes into the harbor yeah and it's kind of an insular and a tidal area where like the tide like washes in and covers parts of it and it's marshy and we went there and of course people go there all the time so you've got plastic vodka bottles and stuff here and there um 
and then there's a power plant across the harbor, yep. directly across. And if you look going out, if you look to your left, there's New Haven's skyline and and like a harbor with boats. And if you look to your right, it looks like you could be in Maine. You know, because yeah. the so is this really interesting moment where you're in something that has been designated for nature, mm -hmm. but there's so many obvious human interventions and, yeah. uh, but all the same, right? In the middle, you know, of West Haven, ten minutes outside of New Haven, there's this bird sanctuary. There were I saw uh, like twenty great blue herons and all sorts of seabirds that were stopping there. I mean, it was really jarring, right, to like be in this place and see nature, but also see how much we'd kind of mucked right. up everything at the same right. time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. So, so those things enter into my work definitely. Yeah. And I guess the the question that I'm coming back to is, um, is how we value species. Yeah. Right. So our urban environments are amazing for pigeons. Right. 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 And squirrels. Yeah. Right. And now and, for hawks now. Yeah. And peregrine yeah. falcon. And yeah. so it's sort of like, it kind of goes back to that series of uh, question of dominion, right? It's like, yeah. What our opinions of animals have to do with their survival. Mm -hmm. Right. And then there's animals, um, I think they're called synanthropes, which thrive on human activity and right. So cats so, and yeah. rats and yeah. Yeah. And pigeons would be and another. Pigeons, reason, sure. Right. So that, yeah. that they're regardless of what we do, they're going to, they're going to do better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. We're going to have waste for them to, to go through and to, Whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the bird sanctuary is amazing, you know, to have those, those animals there. Right. But, yeah. but, um, but the, the environments that we build are also habitat for other animals. Right. Totally. And whether we like them or not, doesn't mean that they're not surviving or thriving or, yeah. or declining. Right. It's Absolutely. A, so it's a weird question, right? It's like, it's a, it's a, so it's such a uh, human perspective. Right. Totally. So an example of that would be, um, you know, uh, at our old house, we had this, these birdhouses we put up, you know, and every year we'd have a robin or a, a wren or something like, uh, having a nest of babies. And it was so great for the kids to see and, you know, just that right in our backyard in New Haven, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was sitting outside just sketching one day and just watching this little bird, like, you know, feeding its young, right? And and it was just every three minutes, it was bringing a worm or a bug or whatever. And I was just like, where is this? Where are you finding these things? I, I don't, when I look around in the garden, I don't see a bug every three minutes that I'm going to be able to grab. Or, yeah. And so, what I realized is that that animal is seeing the environment in a much different way than I am. Right. right. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, our perspective of nature is a human perspective, but there are so many other species on the planet that have their own perspective of the environment. Right. And that going back to, you know, my little anecdote, I, I was thinking that kind of along those lines of like, wow, these birds who are migratory seabirds and water birds have decided that this place like 10 minutes outside of New Haven with a power plant and mm -hmm. is a great place to stop right. and fish for, you know, crabs and all this other stuff. And like, right. you know, who knows what the health effects are of whatever the power plant and the, well, we know, right? We know that it's mm -hmm. not good for them, but... Right. But it was really fascinating to see, yeah, these animals saying like this little sanctuary is where I'm going to stop, like right. right here in this place that I don't think of as nature at all. Right. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so that's a, that's a question too. Like, like how we, 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 I think our, if we close our eyes and imagine nature, we're like out in a forest with no human beings around. Yeah. Right. But I don't know, maybe nature now is just, just that right. Places where other species like can hang out and <laughs> thrive. Then there's and, the, I don't know. The you question know. of are we nature? So is all the stuff that we're yeah. building, is it like in the same way that, right, you, you've done a lot of work having to do with honeybees. Mm -hmm. Are we building nests or like in the same way that honeybees build nests and this is part of our... Yeah. And we're just too good at it for yeah. our own good. No, right? it, it's a you complicated know? question, right? Like, yeah. are, are we a part of nature or are we apart from nature? Yeah. You know, I, I think that perspective, I, I guess, can change in, in a lot of ways. But um, when I think about moving moving into the future, moving forward, yeah. I mean, we can't ignore technology. You know, we have to be able to use technology responsibly and sustainably to be able to exist, right? Right. And we're never going to return to the ancient perfect landscape. Yeah. You know, no, it's not going to happen. Because it, it probably never really existed like that, right? Right. So, so you know, progress is important, but it's it's progress that is responsible that, that right. you know. And I think that when you compare the United States to Europe, right, in Europe, it's a political issue, but also an economical issue, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, Denmark is putting up tons of offshore wind farms because it's, they're able to sustain their economy that way. Right. They're a much smaller country. And, mm -hmm. and of course, Europe's doing a lot to damage the yeah. environment too. But Right. Yeah. You know, but at least, you know, they're doing some stuff. But uh, I wanted to talk about downstream your okay. video. Yeah. I watched the clip of downstream which is embedded on our on our blog and it was a very interesting experience for me and actually it kind of goes back to our the exact conversation that we're having yeah uh the sound of water and actually i had this conversation with nina un who i interviewed just before you right uh the way in which sound immerses us and takes us, transports us sometimes more than imagery. Yeah. And so there's this sound of, 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 a, of a river and water trickling and moving. And it's very much, oh, I'm in nature, purity, the purity of like water and nature, right? And then the images, some of them are, are beautiful. And then some of them are, you, you're showing like a, like a plastic bag underwater caught on a stick, you know? And you're uh, intervening and placing 3D scanned objects in the environment. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to ask you about that whole process and how you came to the idea of, of doing this two-channel video where you're looking upstream and downstream at the same time and mm -hmm. what that's about for you. So that that piece was uh, was a commission. I was invited to propose a piece for a festival in Middletown, Connecticut, called Feet to the Fire, and it's sponsored by Wesleyan University, the Center for Fine Arts, and um, the theme of the festival that year was about the Connecticut River. And so I had a bit of time to think about what to do, and I, I wanted to do something that was um, well. It was shown in a tunnel that went underneath the highway route, mm -hmm. I believe from downtown Middletown to this Harbor Park, which is on the Connecticut River. So in order to get to the riverbanks, you go underneath the highway. So that I want, so I did, I, uh, so the piece was projected in there and I wanted to show 
kind of um, the river systems of Middletown that end up at the Connecticut River. You know? Ah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the that was the starting point of it. At the at the time when I was invited to do that, I was working on these um, digital compositing projects. You know, part of it was like teaching the, this technique to my students, but mm -hmm. also like exploring how to um, bring in 3D imagery into uh, moving images and make it look effective. And yeah. um, so, I wrote this proposal that I would, there are two rivers, um, the Matabeset and the Coggenchog River, start outside of Middletown and they go through the city and then they end up at the Connecticut River. Um, so, um, and, but when you drive around Middletown, you don't see rivers, right? Right. Uh, which I think it's true of a lot of New England and, um, you know, rivers weren't uh, this beautiful attraction. At one time, they were just the sewer system. Right. You know what I mean? So, right. So, cities were built with their backs to the rivers as opposed to, you know, looking at the river. Um, so, the plan was to film the river and show it in the tunnel, but then I wanted to do something with this digital compositing thing. So, I, I was also learning about 3D scanning through photogrammetry, taking photos of an object and then mm -hmm. building it into a 3D image, 3D model rather. And I thought that that would be a fun way to like, you know, bring something to the imagery that, you know, something that I would bring to it as opposed to just documenting it. Right. So, I borrowed my friend Todd Jokel's kayak and over the course of three months, I went to the, these two rivers and kayaked wherever I could. I would kayak down them or I'd walk into the river with waders. And yeah, the idea of it was just that, that one channel is always upstream and one channel is always downstream. Originally, the, the idea, you know, was to project it two screens so that you'd, you'd look at one and look at the other. Um, there was this amazing video by Sharina Ashad I saw when I was in grad school where she did that exact thing. She had two channels and something would happen in front of you and you'd turn around and something would happen behind you. That's cool. I've always been struck yeah. by that piece and so that, that was, I was thinking about that a little bit when I was making the, making the decision to do a two-channel video. But it also was interesting to see as a panorama as well. So, mm -hmm. I kind of feel like the piece is still in development, you know. Yeah, It was, yeah, shown, yeah. It was shown at the festival but it's, it's something I've, um, I've been going, kind of going back to and re-editing and do yeah. some work on. But so, the process was looking at river maps, trying to find where I could walk in, where I could, had to kayak in and just being really kind of open and receptive to the environment. And yeah. so, what I saw was really beautiful areas and areas that were highly polluted by human existence mm -hmm. and these in-between spaces, right? And it's, and it's also, it was amazing like being like so close to a lot of stuff. Uh, in Middletown, it was so private back there. There was yeah. just no one around. Um, that is what, is, it's so funny, yeah, yeah, the way, I can't remember exactly who this was, but some writer or artist, I remember this in high school, I honestly can't remember his name, but to make this kind of, it was almost a performance, he flew into JFK Airport and decided to walk to his hotel in Manhattan instead of take a taxi. Oh, wow. And, and he went and experienced all this stuff that nobody ever explores except for people living in those right. particular neighborhoods. And, you know, there's this idea that the frontier is over and, like, there's no right. new frontier. And it seems almost like the new frontier is these places that are right in front of our faces, but kind of 
concealed in some way or yeah there's a there's a great uh book i don't remember the artist's name but it's called borderlands and mm-hmm. it's a beautiful photographic book uh that just shows i think i've heard of this yeah it's, yeah so it's just these spaces like in between civilization and nature and so there's yeah. culverts and drainage ditches and like you know every big corporate building has a landscape that's not used and it's like it's spaces like that right that aren't really utilized mm-hmm. but there's both nature and and human debris are within these spaces and yeah so that that's sort of what i uncovered right it was like you know it was springtime too so the rivers were high and there was lots of uh, uh lots of stuff floating around and tree limbs and you know uh all kinds of stuff so a couple of things like one one was just like really cool to 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 just be in a new landscape and to explore it and it was slightly dangerous sometimes and like feeling feel, feeling like a kid like should i be here am i going to get yelled at by somebody right like yeah um so that was exciting and then just um then just realizing like uh you know the rivers are like these amazing sculptors right so yeah you'd go to a site one day and there'd be a huge pile of debris and trees and stuff like piled together in this amazing way and you'd go the next day and it'd be all gone or you'd find a mm. riverbank you know where i would like canoe and or a kayak up to and park my kayak and then go back like two days later and that bank would be gone it would be shaped into a different way i think that's, that happens that's very cool probably yeah. a lot in the spring when there's a lot of high flow or yeah or else but but so what i was finding was these really you know cool combinations of natural objects and then human debris formed into these beautiful shapes and designs and structures sometimes and so yeah. photographing those and then what I would do is I would, if I, you know, if I found something like a stick or a, you know, bottle or a can or whatever, I would just like keep stuff that I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. And then I would uh, 3D scan it. And then when I was in the editing process, I would compose these little miniature sculptures, you know, like stacks of objects. And I was thinking about them in sort of a way like um, a primitive kind of archetypal sort of imagery, right? Like yeah. the idea of a Karen, a stack of rocks on top of each other, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and you see that today, like you go to Block Island, for example, and you see people stacking up rocks like, I was here. Yeah. This is yeah, a yeah, yeah. space, right? Like yeah. that that kind of notion. And then there's you know, stone circles and stone arches. And part of uh, my research of like prehistoric um, Neolithic monuments and stuff like that kind of led me to some of these ideas, I guess. But I guess the idea was like, so if I take an open view to the landscape... Am I only going to make like build a structure out of natural objects, or am I going to consider everything in the environment an object that I can play with, just like the river does, right? Right. The river composes right. sticks and an old shopping cart and some plastic bags into a crazy form. Like why can't why can't I do the same thing? So, so that was the the process of that was like kind of finding these sites where I could like sometimes it would be like something I would find, right? So like one example was I f- I saw a coffee cup like floating around in circles in the river and I filmed mm-hmm. that and then then I took it and 3D scanned it and made like an arch out of them mm-hmm. like as a sculpture right yep and so uh, that process was kind of fun too just like virtually sculpting right like mm-hmm. I could have gone out there and got a bunch of coffee cups and made something and mm-hmm. it, but I don't know there's something about like um, 
photography, it's kind of like going back to photography. Photography to me is really interesting because it's a tool that I use consistently to just collect imagery to, mm -hmm. for drawings and whatever mm -hmm. else. But then, but then through a process like photogrammetry, like photography through technology is so much more. Mm. Like suddenly you can take this, this information and make a 3D model out of it that, mm -hmm. that, um, looks super realistic, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you could use it in virtual reality or you could 3D print it or, mm -hmm. you know, like, so, so that I, I just find that really, really interesting as a process. Um, so, it's, I feel like downstream is a, was a great chance for me to, to develop a new way of thinking about digital processes. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, it's something that I'm continuing to develop. It's a, slow, it's yeah. a really slow process, but the new, I have a new a new project I'm working on, which is going to take a while. But um, I'm just interested in um, these giant snow piles and parking lots, right? As these like yeah. they're beautiful, they don't last forever. Um, they're you know especially at night they're just they glow against the black background, and so I've done some tests of like filming these things and then compositing in elements of uh, parking lot debris. You know, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of like how the river is, right? Like the, the snowplow comes and it pushes all this stuff up into a sculptural pile, and in that is a shopping cart and someone's lost shoe and a pack of cigarettes and whatever. And it's right. just like right. it's it makes this this thing. This it actually makes me think of Howard L. Yazine's work. I interviewed him with with all the dryer lint he's collecting and finding all these unpredictable yeah kind of objects where it becomes this archaeological process almost yeah 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 so so it's uh yeah so that's part of it right it's like um looking at the landscape i had a student that did a project as though he he did a field guide as though he was an alien um, <laughs> that's cool and in and observing the earth the environment with just a brand new perspective right yeah that's it was cool. it was it was cool it was a little bit hokey and yeah. whatever but it was like it's an interesting perspective to take right like, yeah so, not that I'm doing that directly, but I, I you know, I'm, I'm just, again, it's kind of like, what is nature, right? Like, what, mm -hmm. do we define it as just like that wildflower in the, you know, in the beautiful field or is it also the giant melting snow pile in the Walmart parking lot? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Your, your downstream work, it's almost like a kind of subversive take on like Andy Goldsworthy, you know, yeah, like yeah. you're just taking litter and arranging it yeah. in this natural space instead of yeah. beautiful natural objects. And, yeah. I hadn't, you know. I hadn't thought about that, but that, that you know, that's the, maybe the process is similar, right? It's just like, what, what are you choosing as your, as your yeah. object, right? It's the same with, yeah. with the notion of animals, right? Like what are we valuing as the, as the natural? I, I like Gold Disorder work a lot, you know, mm -hmm. particularly some of his museum pieces that he's done, you know, like these giant melted snowballs with rocks inside that he just That's sticks cool. and stuff that he just lets melt or That's cool. um, clay put on the wall and it eventually like dries and cracks and falls all over the place. And pieces like that, I think are pretty fascinating. And, you know, part of his work, right, is that is the documentation is the mo is extremely important to his work. Right. Um so, but it's, but I guess for me, it was like the documentation is the, the meddling after the fact, right? <laughs> right, right. I wanted to lastly talk about your open water series, which there are these depictions of open water and there seems to be some kind of event occurring. It could be 
spiritual. It could be like the nuclear apocalypse or it could be viewed as almost like a flattened surface yeah. where like a transition between perspectival depictions to a flat depiction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the open water series um, came, I guess this was after my last exhibition at Mixed Greens Gallery in New York. Um, I did a solo show there. I, I did like four solo shows there, but, but the last one that I did uh, shortly after the gallery closed. Right? Mm -hmm. And that was like a weird time to just sort of like regroup and try to figure things out again. And, you know, part, yeah, yeah, yeah. part of the, 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 my practice was built around like kind of knowing that almost every two years I'd have a show, right? right? So, it just like there was for eight straight years, it was just continually making, 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 you know? Yeah. Because yeah. uh, it was always like the, the couple of months beforehand, mm -hmm. I was just like an overdrive, like making sure I had yeah. work and whatever else, you know? And also like, you know, like my children were born during that time and, you know, like it, it was, you know, like I look back at it now and I'm like, how did I make all that work, you know? Yeah. Um, my wife was very patient during, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. during those times. And it, well, I guess having that deadline is helpful for yeah. artists, right? Yeah. Also, but you also know? I think part of it too was like having a space to kind of rift off of, right? So yeah. Like, um, all of my shows there included, you know, um, drawing, sculpture, video, mm -hmm. installation to some degree, right? So, mm -hmm. it was like having that space to kind of imagine the work in, right? Right. Which is helpful, I think, in a lot of ways. When you don't have a, a really big studio space, you know, it, I think it's helpful to like, you know, not make something for a space so much as just like, you know, well, I can work at this scale because it'll be here and, you know, whatever else. Yeah. And, and that's important. So, like, Coming out of that and then continue to make work, I just I sort of just started making drawings of water, you know, like mm -hmm. um, uh, it was almost like a bit of a meditative process, you know. Um, mm -hmm. My wife and children and I always go to the beach and, you know, like I grew up going to lakes and I don't know, it's mm -hmm. just like always in a, the, the landscape was really important. Yeah. I was also at the time like, and I continue... Uh, continually I'm interested in the land art movement mm -hmm. and part of that movement was going out west where th space was open. Do you know what I mean? And so yeah. like, like yeah. you know, Im imposing a structure in the desert where there's not much evidence of human activity around anywhere and having that be a part of the piece, right? Mm -hmm. So, I was thinking like, where is that here? You know, in the northeast, mm -hmm. where does that exist? And the only thing I could think of was like, you know, looking out at the water. Right, only uninterrupted kind of yeah. view. Right, that's it. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, so I started by just um, making these images of water, and then at the same time, I was I was doing. I mean, some you know, my work is my drawing and painting work has kind of moved from you know black and white graphite work to more color, and, mm -hmm. and um, so I was just messing around in the studio one day, and uh, I spilled some water on a piece of paper and then I had my airbrush I was painting another piece and so I just like started painting the water with the airbrush and I realized it was like it created this resist so the paint would hit the paper and stick to the paper and then it would hit the surface of the water but it wouldn't go beyond that. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so then like I, I did that little test and I blotted up the water on the surface of the paper and then realized that it left like a really beautiful image of like the 
trail of the water on yeah. the page that was white and then the, the airbrush painting on the on the outside was the color, you know. So then I started mixing up the processes. So the open water pieces start out with the, just a graphite drawing of the surface of the water. I'm looking at photographs and making them and projecting them and, you know, drawing to them and stuff. And then um, then when that's done and it's, it's sometimes it's like a hard process to get into because it mm -hmm. looked really nice just as a graphite drawing, but then I'll take a cup of water and just dump it on the page. <laughs> And then I'll take the That's airbrush rough, yeah. Yeah, and just like, and then I'll take the airbrush and go over it and then I'll blot up the paper and then I'll do it again and again and again until you get these little thin layers of color. And essentially the white areas are where the most water was that resisted the paint, right? So they become these weird aqua, you know, almost glowing yeah. kind of works and then... A lot of times too, like I'll mask out little points and dots and things like that, like to add to the yeah particles of some sort and things like that. And this is a is a body of work that was more kind of like intuitive and about the process than mm -hmm. about the concept so mm -hmm. much. You know, I didn't like arrive at a concept and then like make an image of it as mm -hmm. opposed to just like kind of exploring the landscape and seeing what I can do with the material. So, there, I still don't necessarily know always how to talk about them. Right, 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 right. Which I'm yeah. okay with. I think that um, they are, like you said, they, I feel like they are, um, you know, potentially dangerous and potentially um, beautiful at the same time. Yeah. They have that, I think that's kind of what I like about them is, is that they are, uh, yeah, they are like an event. You know, there, yeah, like something's happening, it seems like. But also there's a kind of danger in open water mm -hmm. too. Yeah. You know, and um, it also looks, because of your process, it makes me think of the flooding from Sandy and Chelsea and how mm -hmm. like there are all these works of paper like floating in galleries yeah. because of the flooding down there. It It both has a sense of, it's a depiction of open water and then the process of making it is utilizing water to inflict some kind of, not necessarily damage, but alter something permanently. Yeah. 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 And I think what I, what I like about the process, and I'll go back to the, to the Chelsea thing in a second, but what I like about the process is that it's a very controlled yeah. uh, beginning and yeah. very uncontrolled ending, you know, and the, right. two of those things kind of come together Right. and there's, you know, there's been quite a few failures that I don't show. Right yeah, now, I was going to ask you that because yeah. I haven't mentioned just, I mean, people will see when they look at your work how great of a drafts person you are, but I, I wanted to ask you about what that process is like. I mean, how many times you mess up? Do you have to get into some zen, like state of zen to mm -hmm. maintain your concentration and I mean, keep going? I think that um, it may, 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 maybe it's a little bit of a reverse. Like I've made enough drawings now that I don't like. I don't you know, have to like psych myself up to make a drawing. Right, you know what I mean? Gotcha. It just kind of yeah. like come you do it. and just do it. But I like um, you know I have an affinity for like repetition and line. Yeah. Right? And so like if you look at the silver point drawings, they're all about line, right? And, yeah. And then the the images of open water, they're the waves become these marks, right? And mm -hmm. and so just kind of following a mark and following a mark and following a mark. And I and I really like when I have like the middle of the process is great, mm -hmm. right? 
starting out a drawing is awesome. It's it's kind of daunting, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I got to do this big thing or whatever. Yeah. But the middle of it is just like listening to music and spending two hours just like making little marks of waves, mm-hmm. right? Trying to disconnect myself from everything else, right? It is a bit of a moment of Zen in that way, right? There's yeah. Kind of a meditative process. Yeah. You kind of get lost in it. And, but it's also, I really find that like just starting something and then making it while you're in the making, you're also thinking about your work, right? Yes. So, a lot, totally. of, a lot of my ideas of work come while I'm actually making the work itself. Mm. So, it's like this self-generative process. That's cool. So, I feel like, you know, my practice, especially having kids is, is like if I can get in the studio every day if I can, even if it's only for an hour, if I can do just a little bit of something. Yeah then yeah. it triggers my mind to think and I if I leave myself the space to continue the next day then I can just pick up where I left off totally yeah yeah I have this question about your body of work I was looking at some of the trees and you you don't always have you know these pine tree cell towers there were a couple works from way back of trees without leaves on them and these technological things attached to them. I'm not sure what they were, but I was looking at the depictions and there's a kind of American Gothic vibe in the work a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I, even when I look at the water, I start thinking about, I don't know that Winslow Homer is a part of like his Gothic, but I think about America, like American art Mm -hmm. and see a a relationship because the Winslow Homer is like really good like was like the best painter of water and I was wondering if you yeah, looked I mean, at yeah, I mean, his, his kind work, of stuff. Yeah, his work is, is pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, so there are artists that you, it's hard not to just admire their their hand, right? Yeah. That what they can do with material. Um, and so, yeah, like Homer's work is pretty amazing. Like I, you, so you look at it sometimes, you can't believe that's watercolor. Right. Because watercolor yeah. is not something that's like, I don't know, it, it takes a certain way to handle it, to really understand it, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's kind of, it's the properties of water, like what mm-hmm. it does on the surface of the page and what it can do. But then just realizing the mastery of it, which is like leaving areas open. Right. Not touching this spot, but then doing it or, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. like that, there's a lot of what looks spontaneous, there's a lot of planning and, yeah. and understanding yeah. that goes into that, right? So... Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, so the, some of the cell phone tree drawings showed, uh, in Paris, right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they weren't all that well received cause I don't think there were any cell phone tower trees in the landscape over there. Right. And I so see, there was yeah. a bit of a disconnect as to how it kind of, you know, but I think like, you know, in, in California and in the Northeast, there are these things around, you know, and like in LA and San Francisco, there are palm trees that have cell phone tower just attached to them or whatever you know so there's mm-hmm. like that it's a part of our the technology is a part of our language that we see and, and can relate to in those sort of ways um so i mean i, I yeah i mean I, I think that there's some amazing things that the hudson river school mm-hmm. made you know that, that whole generation just made these amazing images of the landscape right and uh and oftentimes you know we think of them as depictions of nature but they were really talking about technological there are always they if you look closely like there's a picture of a power plant or something like way in the distance or yeah trees being cut down um right you know in places and we look at it today and say that's so beautiful and natural but to their eye right it was a kind of look at what's happening here yeah yeah it's interesting i mean yeah so so time is an interesting thing when we think about art right like you know, uh, when we look at impressionist paintings, 
Mm -hmm. They don't seem very revolutionary, right? Yeah. But, you know, to to depict the everyday life at that time was out of place, right? Yeah. So, again, it's it's interesting to look back like 10 or 12 years at a piece of work and see sure, how, it, yeah. how it relates now. And, and and what I realize is that there's even themes that, that in the work that I thought I was making about that change, you know, so mm-hmm. um, based on current events or, or whatever else, there's like these moments where I would be talking about it in a certain way and I now I look back and I would talk about it in a different way. Yeah. And, and I like that about art. You know, you, you make something, you, you have an, there, well, first of all, there's the artist's intent, which yep. are or decisions that we don't reveal to people, right? Yep. Like, you know, I really like drawing bark. I'm going to draw a tree. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's why I'm making this. Yeah. But, you know, like, like some yeah. weird reason why you do something, right? Right. And then at some point you have to talk about the work and that the intent of making it doesn't always, isn't always included in how you talk about it. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're talking about it in a way that, that, um, I don't know, you, you want to let the viewer in on a little bit about the meaning or the content or whatever. Absolutely, yeah. And sometimes the meaning can kind of come to you a long time after, you know. Absolutely, yeah. And I think now, uh, you know, I, I realize that I don't need to invent it. I can make and I'll ha- I have a lot of time to decide what it's about. Absolutely, yeah. And, um and, you know, sometimes it changes based on like w- how it's shown, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes my work is shown in a group exhibition context and it has one meaning and then it's shown in another context and it has another meaning, right? So, it's interesting how things, that's how images are, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, we, we, bring, we bring things to them. Curators can talk about them in some ways. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch of my work has I talk about because a curator talked about it a certain way, and I'm like, "Wow, that's, sure. that's really smart." I should right. talk about it like that, right? you know? Like, right, right, right. Yeah. But, but we have, uh, I think, artists have that liberty, right? We we can frame it how we want to. Sometimes I have the trouble of like talking too much about the meaning of it, right? I feel, I feel mm-hmm. like sometimes I've talked about it too much to the point where uh, there's not the openness of it, right? So I, I think it's a tricky balance when you're when you're making representational work like how much do you reveal and how much do you conceal or how much do you leave open and how much do you um i guess it's learning to let imagery speak for itself in some ways right totally yeah thank you so much for taking the time to come on to the first stop and share your you know thought process for all the work that you're doing it was great yeah well thank i mean thank you for inviting me and also for you know like sharing all these artists uh, that are doing amazing things in New Haven. I think that your program is doing great things for our community. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. If you like the show, give us a good rating. And if you have a moment, write a review. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Bruce Barber, director of WNHU, for providing the resources and guidance to make this podcast possible.